Well, I know everyone's got a Blue Jays on their mind uh, right now, but the Leafs are also in training camp, and Hockey Canada is also beginning to do the work of building their national team for the 2022 Olympics. I know it feels like we just had a Summer Olympics, but it was delayed by COVID, and the Winter Olympics are on their way. And uh, what, are the, what are the greatest moments in Olympic history actually didn't involve a Canadian team? I know, can anyone do anything great in hockey apart from Canada? And I almost hesitate to share this story because it involves that large nation just directly to the south of us that will remain nameless. But in the, in the 1980s, uh, the, the, this group of hockey players were, were brought together to to go up against the, the Soviet Union. Now, this is the same Soviet Union team that Paul Henderson scored on in 1972, but those were our best players. Those were the best Canadian players in the NHL. But, okay, I'll, I'll admit, they were Americans. These Americans in the 1980s, these were minor league hockey players, college players. These were non-professionals that were going up against that same Soviet Red Army team. The year's 1980. It's happening in Lake Placid, New York, and... It was called the miracle on ice because miraculously the United States defeated the Russians and won the Olympic gold medal. Now, their coach was a bit of a, was a, bit of a character and he had a, a number of, he, his name was Herb Brooks, he had a number of what people called Brooksisms. He had a number of famous quotes that, that people would sort of uh, recite or speak to one another that all the players remembered. And this was one of the most memorable of his quotes. Talking about building a team, he said, this, you're looking for players whose name on the front of the sweater is more important than the one on the back. The name on the front of the sweater, the, the name in, in his case, the, the, the USA or the crest of the team logo must be more important than the name on the back. And as followers of Jesus Christ, as members of the Hope Church family, the, 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 the name on the front of our jersey is Jesus. The, the name on the back may be our last name or whatever that may be, but that is irrelevant. What matters is the team that we are playing for. And as you heard Holly read our passage today, you can see that, that Paul's burden for the church at Corinth is that they would be united, that they would rally around the fact that they're on the same team and stop worrying about where they think they may stand in terms of individuals. The title for today's message is, Is Christ Divided? Is Christ Divided? Divided. I'm just taking that right from verse 13. Paul asked that question. He looks at this church at Corinth that was so divided over all of these different smaller issues. And he points them to the name on the front of the jersey. And he points them to Christ. You see... Our series is called Church at a Crossroads, and one of the things that can happen when, when a church finds itself in a at a crossroads is that there's disagreement about which way we should go, and that what can all happen is one leader says, well, we should go this way, and then another leader says, no, we should go that way, and then the church splits and ends up going in multiple different directions. And Paul is fearful that the church at Corinth is going to do that, that they're going to be divided, that everyone is going to take an on-ramp and go on their own little ego trip, following the desires of the name on the back of the jersey as opposed to the name 
on the front. And so today we're going to look at, at three characteristics of a divided church. Three things that we want to watch for and that we want to avoid at all costs to ensure that our church is not divided. Here's the first characteristic of a divided church. Jesus is moved from the center to the periphery. Jesus is moved from the center to the periphery. He's no longer the focus that brings the team together. He's just kind of an add-on. Everyone has focused on the names on the backs of the jersey and have forgotten about the most important name. Look at what Paul says. He says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The name. In the nine verses leading up to verse 10, Paul has used the name Jesus nine times. It's almost like he's reintroducing the church to their Lord and to their Christ. He's, they, they've, they've been sending letters back and forth. There's been mis- messengers coming and going. They have questions about everything and opinions about everything, but no one's talking about Jesus. And so Paul here, he says, I appeal to you by the name of Jesus Christ. He makes an appeal. The Greek word there is parakaleo. Para means to come beside someone, like a paramedic. You come beside them to give them medical care. Kaleo means to call or to speak. So Paul, he's not speaking down to them with apostolic authority. He's saying, no, I'm appealing to you. I'm coming down beside you, and I'm pointing you to the name of Jesus. And everything that Paul is going to say is trying to reorient the church to get Jesus at the center. And he calls him the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord means he's master. Christ means he's Messiah. Lord speaks about his crown. Christ speaks about his cross. And when he says the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not like he's just using it as a, as, a, as a magic word or something like that. He's appealing to the character of Christ, the calling that all of them have been called to in Christ, the name on the front of the jersey, that they, they're not just representing themselves, they're representing Christ. He's appealing to Christ's supremacy and to Christ's sacrifice. And what does he want them to do? That you all agree. The Greek there means to speak the same thing. He want, they're, they're, none of them are on the same page. And they're, they need to start speaking the same thing. And what they need to speak about is Christ. That there would be in verse 10, no divisions. United in verse 10, of the same mind and of the same judgment. That word uh, united means to, 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 to repair or to complete. It, it's really used to describe fishing nets that got a big hole in it and that it is, it is united. It's mended together so that the net is now stronger now that it is repaired. That is what he is calling them to, that they would be united of the same mind and of the same judgment. Then he tells them the reason for his concern. Verse 11, he says, for, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. Now, we don't know who Chloe is. We don't know if Chloe was a Corinthian or if she was an Ephesian. Paul is writing this letter from Ephesus. 
But what we can understand, at least from a little bit about Chloe, is that Chloe's got people. She's got a household. These might be servants or slaves or business associates. And remember, if you want to do business anywhere in the Roman world, you're going through Corinth. And, and so Paul's here in Ephesus, and he stumbles across some of these people from Chloe's household. Again, they might have been coming from Ephesus to Corinth or from Corinth to Ephesus and they give a report to Paul, and he says, listen, man, the Sunday morning or the, the Wednesday night Bible study at, at the church, all it is is quarreling. All they're doing is fighting with one another. And Paul says, you guys got to knock it off. You're not united. You're not of the same mind. You're not of the same judgment. You're quarreling with one another. And look what he calls them in verse 10. He says, my brothers. And then in verse 11, he also says, my brothers. You see, when we have our focus on Christ, we remember that Christ is our Savior, which means God is our Father, and that makes us brothers and sisters with one another, that we're family, that we ought not to be quarreling with one another. Beloved, when it's, it's only when we focus on Christ that we will be able to resolve some of these divisions. Remember, we learned last week that it's, that it's only the cross of Christ that helps us resolve every conflict and refuse every compromise. You know, it's, it's like the spokes on a wheel. The power, the force, the, the motion for that wheel is coming in the hub. All the power is in the hub. And the closer the spokes are to the wheel, the closer, I'm sorry, each, each of those spokes is connected to the wheel to access that power. And the further we are from the hub, the further we are from the power. But the closer that we move towards the hub, the closer that we come towards the center, towards Christ, the closer we will be together. It's not just that a divided church just needs to say, oh, quick, we all just need to get together because you're going to have one group saying, come over here, come over here. You're going to have another group saying, no, no, over here, come over here. But if we say, no, there's Christ, let's meet there. Like spokes on a wheel, like branches on a tree. All of the nutrients, all of the strength comes from the trunk. And the closer you come to the trunk on your branch, the closer you'll be together. That's what Paul is calling them to. He's calling them to put Christ at the center. That they would be one of the same mind, of the same judgment. That there would be no divisions. This was Jesus' prayer for his church. In John 17, verse 11, Jesus said, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then Jesus goes on to say, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That, that there may all be one, just as you, Father, in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That we would be one, that our oneness would reflect the oneness in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And this is something that we see in the early stages in the early church in Acts chapter 4 verse 32. We're, we're, we're told this, that now the full number of those who believed were of one heart 
and soul. This is, the, this is God's intention for the church, centered around Jesus, living in unity, experiencing that blessing that the psalmist mentions in Psalm 133, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. This is what we are aiming at. Loved ones, this is what we're called to. Those of us who are members of the Hope Church family, those of us who are, are formal members here at Hope Church, we, we, we sign a, a little document like this that outlines seven commitments of church membership. And commitment number six is, is this. Let me show you it here on the screen. To love the diverse body of believers at the church, eagerly pursuing and protecting the church's unity, diversity, and purity. That, that we are committed to being united as a church family. You know, we, we all, we're all different. We have different personalities and temperaments and abilities and likes and dislikes. And because I'm devoting all my full-time working energy to this church family, I have the privilege of, of knowing just about everyone who comes through the doors here. And you may not experience it as much just because you might be over on your branch of the tree and really only talking to birds on your branch or your spoke of the wheel, but I'm telling you that to move from like one conversation in this end of the foyer to another, I feel like I'm in the Starship Enterprise. I'm going from one planetary system to a whole other, like people think and talk and really act, culture, whatever it may be, in completely different ways. And yet, what brings us together? What's the hub? What's the trunk? It's Jesus Christ. Listen, we are not all the same. Hallelujah. But we are gathered around Christ. We, we got we to be singing off the same song sheet. You know, I, I'm so thankful for Jameson and Sitlali, how they're up there, they're singing. And you notice sometimes they, they harmonize I love harmony. I, I can't sing in harmony. If you sing a, a melody, chances are I can probably follow it most of the time if you're, as long as you're within my very limited range. But, but people that can sing in harmony, just it's so amazing to me. But the, you know, the key to singing in harmony is not just your ability to sing, it's your ability to listen. You have to hear what the main melody is, and then you bring your voice to match that. And it brings something beautiful. And loved ones, if we are going to be a church that's not divided, we're going to have to be really good at listening. So pick your controversial topic, you know, whichever one you want to pick, whether it, be, whether it be the government or vaccinations or race relations or whatever it may be, and I just want to ask, I want to ask you, when's the last time that for like an hour you sat down with another brother or sister in Christ who doesn't see 
the world the way you see it, who doesn't agree with you on that particular issue, and you just listen. You just, again, didn't mean you had to agree with them or pretend like, oh, that's right, that's right. No, you just completely heard them out from start to finish. Here's how they're putting all of this together, and you're not rebutting or interjecting or anything like that. When is the last time that whatever issue has you all amped up right now, I'm not just talking about reading what they're posting on social media. I'm talking about sitting down face-to-face and listening and hearing for the purpose of harmony. For the purpose of saying, listen, as long as we agree on Christ, you can think whatever you want to think about that. And, and listen, there might be some things that you're not seeing clearly and I can help you eventually, but I'm going to start by listening. Before I start to sing my part, I want to make sure I know the part that you're singing, and then to invite them to, to hear you out as well. Loved ones, this is what we are, this is what we are called to. There can, be no, there can be no tears in the net. There can be no divisions. We're to rally around Christ. Loved ones, what we need is to have a, a general posture of being a learner. Of, of learning about how God has wired and made and created and is sanctifying the different people around our church family. When Jesus is at the center, that means that all of us find ourselves in a place of humility. Humility before him and also humility before, before one another. So that's the first thing to watch for. The first sign of a divided church is that Jesus is no longer at the center. He's at the periphery. But if Jesus is at the periphery, something's got to fill that vacuum. And that leads us to the second thing that we learn from what Paul is writing here is that leaders are seen as celebrities rather than servants. This is a real danger, loved ones. When leaders are seen as celebrities rather than servants. You heard Holly read the passage. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I, I follow Cephas. Oh, I follow Christ. I follow Paul. Paul was the original church planner. So these are the, well, back in the good old days of the church in Corinth when we used to do things right, when Paul was here, and then Apollos, who in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 18, Paul plants the church in Corinth, and then he leaves a year and a half later, and Priscilla and Aquila leave as well. Priscilla and Aquila end up in Ephesus. They meet this guy named Apollos, this totally gifted speaker. I mean, his presentation was incredible. His content was a little bit weak. And so Priscilla and Aquila actually discipled him, got him straight on his content, and then sent him to Corinth. So then Apollos became like the main teacher in Corinth, and eventually Apollos moved on. So there were some people that really jazzed about this new guy, Apollos, and the way that he could talk, and they're like, no, sign me over him, I'm on, I'm on the Apollos team. And then there was the, the people who said, I follow Cephas, that's, that's Peter's name. And maybe these were people who were part of the original church back in Acts chapter 2. Back in, maybe these were people from Jerusalem who relocated to Corinth. Or maybe they were just, you know, like very, very, very traditional. Said, no, no, you think Paul is back in the day? No, let me tell you about back in the day. The glory days, okay? I, I follow Peter. And then you have these other people who are like, you know what? We, we don't follow any leaders. We don't even follow the elders of the church or, or any sort of insight. We follow Christ. Now that sounds like the best option, right? Christ is the center. 
But I think Paul is mentioning that for a reason, because sometimes people say, well, I just follow Jesus. I don't, I don't follow institutional uh, religion. Well, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the church is an institution. So that's, if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to be part of the collective church uh, family, whether you like it or not. But that, that, that's a dangerous group in and of itself, because sometimes that's just a cover for I'm just going to do whatever I want. And so they were divided into these uh, four categories here. So when Paul asks in verse 13, this is the title for our message, is Christ divided? You tell me the answer. Is Christ divided? No, he's not. Thank you. And then, it, and then he says, was Paul crucified for you? No. These are names on the backs of the jersey, not the name on the front. It's all about Jesus. He must be at the center Stop elevating these leaders. It can happen in a church constant. I follow Shipley, I follow McCoody or Mendoza or Wahab or Duncan. It can happen on a larger scale. I follow Simons or Piper or Dever or Keller or MacArthur. Again, we can be thankful for these leaders, but remember, those are names on the backs of jerseys, not on the front. Christ is not divided. Our approach to church must be governed by our approach to Christ. Christ isn't divided, therefore the church cannot be divided. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 and three through 6. We'll take a look at it here on, here on the screen. It says, we've got to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then he lays out the, the, the theological underpinning. This is the foundation of why we should be eager to be united. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, that's Jesus. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. All. Christ is not divided. God is not divided. Our hope is not divided. The spirit is not divided. The body cannot be divided. The church cannot be divided. Our ecclesiology and our Christology must be in sync. We can't say there's one Christ and he's undivided and yet foster division within the body of Christ. It's counterproductive and it's Theologically and intellectually inconsistent. Paul says in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. So what was happening here is that the, as these people were having these divisions, they were trying to show how closely aligned they were with one of the branches. And they were saying, well, well Paul baptized me. Well, well Paulos baptized me, well, 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 Peter was there. I was there in Jerusalem, and I, I was baptized by, by Peter. And Paul says, man, I'm glad. I'm glad I didn't baptize a lot of you so that a lot of you can't sort of make that argument. This is what he's hearing from Chloe's household that based off who the person was that baptized you, they were claiming sort of a special authority or a special identity with some of these people. I was joking with a, a couple of small group leaders in our a church family, and when they first came to the church, and uh, they got baptized, and, and I baptized them, and uh, one of them in particular, 
I didn't really do a great job. I had to baptize them twice. Like they kind of went on. It was all my fault. They kind of went under and there was sort of, everyone, everyone kind of, you know, you clapped after baptism. It was kind of like, oh, that didn't go, that didn't go correct. So I had to baptize them, them again, you know, and then everyone cheered. Oh, okay, it's great. So maybe being baptized by Ted isn't like the greatest thing to be, uh, to be associated with because I, I don't always get it right. Paul here is saying, no, don't you realize it's not the person who, like you're totally missing the point. You're being baptized into Christ. That under the water is identifying with Jesus' burial, not Paul's burial or Apollos' burial. Being resurrected out of the water is a symbol of you being identified with Christ's resurrection, not Paul's or Apollos' or Peter's. You see, loved ones, we all want to be part of something bigger. And when we latch on to these leaders or these people or these concepts, it, it, can, it, can, it, it feels like we're a part of something. But we're, we are a part of something bigger, but it's something that's not big enough. It's something too small. It's just a branch of the tree where the strength is in the trunk. It's a spoke of a wheel where the power is in the hub. Loved ones, if there's ever been a time for the church to like rethink the celebrity leader thing, it's our generation, right? I think we've been given example after example, tragic fall after tragic fall to say, loved ones, we got to get as close to the center. We got to stick to the trunk of the tree and not follow what's happening on the branches, we, we look at certain leaders and we think about their intelligence or their eloquence or their appearance or their influence and they think, I want to be associated with that. But we're settling for something so much smaller. Loved ones, good leaders are windows, not walls. A good Christian leader is a window. They're there just so that you can look through them. So that you can see the beauty of Christ in all of his glory. A good leader is a window. A bad leader is a wall. You can't see. That's all that there is. It might have nice paint on it. It might have a beautiful trendy wallpaper on it. It might have a nice piece of art on it. But it's just a wall. It's not leading you to look at what is beautiful and glorious beyond. So if you find yourself in spiritual leadership, even as a parent, you're a spiritual leader, to make sure that you are being a window and not a wall. So Paul says, well, I'm, I'm glad I didn't baptize uh, all of you. But then he says in verse 17, for, for Christ did not send me to baptize. It almost sounds like he's saying that baptism isn't that, isn't that big of a deal? Well, Paul's like, ah, oh, it's other people's job. I, I, don't, I don't really care about, that's not what he's saying. He's not downplaying baptism. Notice that he's speaking to a group of Christians, to a church, and he's assuming they've all been baptized. He, he's not assuming, well, for those of you who opted for baptism, no, he's assuming every single Christian has been baptized because that's like step one. You're a follower of Jesus, you get baptized. So he's not downplaying baptism. There's, there's a clue here because the people that he's mentioning, the names that he's mentioning would, would trigger in the Corinthians' mind why he only baptized so few. 
So Gaius in verse 14, we don't know that much about him, and he's mentioned in Romans chapter 16, verse 23. He was probably the host, like Paul probably stayed at his house there in Corinth. But these other two guys, Crispus in verse 14, and Stephanus in verse 16. Stephanus was the guy that Paul didn't quite remember at first. Here's, here's what happens with, with Crispus. Notice the timing of, oh, sorry, yeah. Notice the timing of when these guys got baptized. Acts 18, this is when the church is getting started. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household and were baptized. So these were like the first converts, Crispus and his household. And then in 1 Corinthians 16, where it said, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. Achaia is the province, so Corinth is the city, Achaia is the province, think Mississauga and Ontario. So, so Stephanus and Crispus were early converts. There, were no, there was no church yet. There were no elders, there was no leadership, there was no structure, there was no one else to baptize but Paul. So Paul did the baptism. But then, once leaders got established and the church got organized, Paul, said, Paul knew that he wasn't going to be there long term, and so he... He allowed the leaders of the church at Corinth to do the baptism from that point on. Paul knew he was an apostle. He was a planter. So when he says Christ did not send me to baptize, he wasn't saying baptism wasn't important. He was just, he was just reminding the church family that it's, it's the gospel that saves, not baptism. It's association with Christ. That's the key of baptism, not the leader. And Paul understood that he was a servant and not a celebrity. So signs that a church is divided as Jesus moves from the center to the periphery. Leaders are seen as celebrities rather than servants. And then, and then lastly, here's, uh, here's our, our third uh, point. Let's get the third point uh, on the screen here. Style is elevated above substance. Style is elevated above substance. So right here at the end of verse 17, and this launches into verses 18 all the way into chapter, chapter 2, which we'll, Lord willing, get into next week. But he says that Christ sent him to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul came to preach the gospel, but he came to preach the gospel in a very particular way. Not with words of eloquent wisdom. Wisdom, because he knew that if he spoke with eloquent wisdom, the cross would be emptied of its power. Paul wanted to preach the gospel. Now, eloquent wisdom was a big deal in Corinth. Remember, they had their own Olympic Games. Poetry reading and oration was an Olympic sport. It was a huge deal. But Paul did not want the gospel of the cross of Christ to be emptied of its power. Think about your car without any gas. It doesn't matter how, how, how nice you polished it or waxed it. It doesn't matter how well you detailed the inside of it. If there's no gas, there's no power. Think about your brand new iPhone or Samsung or whatever. Talk about divisions. It doesn't matter how new and fancy it is. It doesn't matter the otter box you have to keep it safe. It, it doesn't matter how good the camera is or how much data you have if you haven't charged it. 
it's, it's just a small little piece of drywall. It's just, it's just a big thing of drywall. You're, you're holding it. If there's, no, if there's no power, it's pointless. Think about your body without food. Some of you, I already am. Hurry it up, Ted. I want to have lunch. But no, think about your body without food. Think about those times where, for whatever reason, whether a spiritual reason like fasting or, or another reason, where, where you, you went without food for a long, and think about how lethargic you were, how you had no power or no energy. Paul says the, the cross of Christ is like that. If, if we start adding on this eloquent wisdom and trying to be like the Corinthians, then the message is going to be emptied of its power. Loved ones, the church is not supposed to be like the world. We're supposed to be different. And I see all around us, the the, the church Christians jumping on every trend, every bumper sticker and buzzword, every slogan, everything in the 24-hour news cycle, falling over ourselves to fit in. We're emptying The power of the cross when we do that. We're emulating the world rather than evangelizing the world. We're we're reflecting its values rather than trying to reach out and bring about the transformation of those values through the gospel. Again, we got to stay to the center of the trunk, we got to stay to the hub in the wheel. When we get out on the far branches, there's no strength out there. When we get out into the, to the, to the far edge of the spokes of the wheel, the only reason that there's any power on the edge of the wheel is because of the power at the hub. Loved ones, the power that we have is the gospel. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power. 1 Corinthians 4.20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says that we have this treasure in jars of clay. We're just jars of clay. We're not eloquent. We're not special. We're not fancy like the Corinthians. So that to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 2 Corinthians 10.4 The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You think about the different strongholds that the enemy has in our world today. You think about just all the different areas of Society, whether it be technology, whether it be government, whether it be entertainment, whatever that may be, loved ones, we have the power to destroy whatever strongholds the enemy has established. And that power is simply the gospel. It's simply the truth. Let me just break it down as simply as I can. It's simply the truth about God, sin, Jesus, and the call to believe. That when we 
find ourselves engaging with our neighbors or our teachers or fellow students or even with other Christians who we disagree with. We need to always come back to God, sin, Jesus, and the call to believe. First off, that God is the creator of all things, that he's responsible for making all of this. And because he is the creator, he is the reason why we have breath in our lungs, we are accountable to him. And one day all of us will stand before him because he made us. We are his. He is the creator. We are his creatures. He sets the rules. We don't. So the gospel starts just with the assertion that there is a God and that we are accountable to him. He's our creator and we are his creatures. And then we, we move from, a, from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the story of creation, to Genesis 3, where sin entered into the world, where Satan slithered into the garden and lied to Adam and Eve, said that they wouldn't disobey, sorry, that they wouldn't die if they disobeyed God's law. And they took the fruit. They could have eaten from any of the fruit of the Garden of Eden. Read the text closely. The fruit was the same kind of fruit as all the other fruit of the garden. It was, all the fruit of the garden was pleasing to the eye. All the fruit of the garden was good for food. So when Eve looked at it and saw that it was pleasing to the eye and was good for food, that's the same as the rest of the fruit in the garden. What pushed them over the edge was when Satan said, you will become like God. Because in that moment, Adam and Eve understood that they weren't just becoming lawbreakers, they were also becoming lawmakers. And they're saying, we are going to decide what's right and what's wrong. And is that ever any more evident than in 2021? We're making up what's true and what's not true. We are deciding what's right and what's wrong. And when Adam and Eve said, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to become like God, then they're basically saying we don't need God anymore because we are like him. So we've got to talk about God, we've got to talk about sin. And sin disrupted the relationship with God. If God is the creator of life, if we cut ourselves off from him, then the natural result is death. Satan did lie. He said you will not die. They lived for several hundred years, a lot longer than any of us will ever live. But they died. Separated from God, punished for their sin. And then comes Jesus. Jesus came as the Son of God. He's God in flesh. He lived a perfect life, the life that Adam and Eve couldn't live, the life that you and I couldn't live, no matter how hard we try. We, we can't follow God's law, and yet Christ obeyed it perfectly. He lived the life that none of us could live and then he died the death that all of us deserve to die because of our sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That Christ suffered and died on the cross. He took the blame for our sin. He bore the punishment, the wrath of God, the just anger of God against the evil that we have committed was all poured out on Christ in that moment. And the immortal Son of God died. But death didn't hold him. Three days later, he rose again from the dead. He still had the scars of his crucifixion, but he ate and drank with his disciples. He was physically resurrected. And he unpacked for them from all the way back to Adam and Eve 
all the way throughout the rest of the Old Testament to show how he needed to die as the substitute for our sin. And then our response then is to believe. That when we are witnessing or sharing the gospel with one another, that it's not about earning our salvation. Why do you think the world is is so bent on all of these different issues, whether it be in the environment or, again, racial relations or, or government or vaccines? Everyone is trying to justify and show that they're a good person. Where the Christian understands none of us are good people. We aren't saved by our works. We are saved by believing in the gospel. It's a call to believe. Loved ones, that that simple message, there's power in that message. That, That simple, we need to understand. Listen, there was nothing eloquent about what I just said. It was four words, some brief explanations. There's nothing Eloquent. The, the world would not be cheering me on as I shared that. But loved ones, there is power in that message. When we, when we share that message, there is power. When we allow that message to inform how we live and how we interact and disagree with one another, there is power in the gospel. And when we try to add all of these other things into it, we empty it of its power. And that power is what we remember today when we come together and we take bread and we take a cup and we remember Christ's body and Christ's blood and we remember that we are part of the body and we discern the body on two levels. We discern Christ's physical body that died for us and then we also discern that we're part of the body of Christ And we're called to unity. So we take these symbols in our hands and we remember. We remember that Christ can't be on the periphery. He must be at the center. And and, and if there's a leader at the center, then that that leader needs to be pushed to the periphery. That leader needs to be a window and not a wall. And as we're thinking about how we do church and how we do life, we need to understand that that it's the substance, not the style. It's, it's the power, not the performance that causes us to stand out, that brings true life transformation. So let me pray for us now, and then I'll invite uh, Roy to come out and lead us uh, in the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. We thank you. We pray that you would uh, be with us now as we take these symbols into our hands, as we reflect on what it means for us to be the body of Christ and to think about Christ's body that was crucified for us and his blood that was shed for us. Lord, we pray that you would draw us very, very near to you. And Lord, I pray that as we come near to you, God, that we would come closer to one another. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.